Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts 7, beginning with verse 1 today, and let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Lord, day by day you uh, keep us and sustain us, you bless us and feed us so that we would live and keep your perfect word. But our eyes are dim, they're clouded by the cares of this world, we're willfully closed because of our own rebellious hearts. So will you open our eyes by the power of the Spirit that we would behold wondrous things from your law. Teach us to wonder and to marvel at what you have spoken. We are sojourners on the earth. How can we walk the paths you've laid toward the heavenly homeland if your commandments are hidden from our eyes? So may we see just a little more of Christ this day, who is the Word revealed to us. In His name we pray. Amen. Before we read the Word, a few comments on context. Remember, this is Stephen's trial before the Sanhedrin, and they are trying him and accusing him of changing the law of Moses, blaspheming against Moses, and of saying that Jesus was going to tear down the temple. Um, and we, I chose to do the whole of chapter 7 today, which is 60 verses. It's a big one. Um, the reason I chose to do that is because it's really one unit. We see Stephen's defense, which is actually becomes his, his prosecution, and it ends with King Jesus looking down at him, actually standing and rendering a verdict and bearing witness to Stephen. So it's all one unit. So next time I'll probably spend more time on Stephen's martyrdom in, in particular. Um, but today we're going to look at his trial and his defense. So And as we are reading a passage that's 60 verses, understand if you can't stand the whole time, but please do stand for the reading of the word. And remember, this is the good part. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died... God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. 
But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At his retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt." This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one 
who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed them to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Amen. This is God's word. I told Cohen I intended to preach 14 minutes on each verse. (laughs) The title of the sermon this morning is, Who's on Trial? 
because this is the story of Stephen's defense and his trial before the Sanhedrin. And yet you get the sense reading this chapter that he's actually kind of become the prosecutor. He, his cross-examination here is fierce. And in the end, the defendants really can't win the argument logically. They turn to violence. According to tradition, the common method of stoning was to strip the guilty person, to take him outside the city and to throw him off of a drop at least twice his height. And the witnesses would be the first to throw stones. They would throw large stones aiming for the chest until the person died. The guilty were the ones who were usually stripped. And yet here in Luke's account, he doesn't mention whether Stephen was or not, but he does mention the people stoning him removed their garments. I don't know, but I wonder if that's some kind of ironic, uh, intentional um, drawing of our inten- attention toward the sort of self-implication of their own guilt by people who are murderers and false witnesses. When Stephen's about to die, he looks into heaven and he sees Jesus standing, not sitting, standing at the right hand of the Father. Apparently, ancient witnesses as well as judges would stand to render the verdict or their testimony. So here's Jesus who would be sitting at the right hand of the Father standing. It's as though he's rendering his verdict. So who really is on trial here? Who will Jesus, the just judge, condemn when it's all said and done? Now, Stephen's message exposes the guilt of these men who accuse him, and in doing so, he gives us an opportunity to cross-examine our own souls and our own self-righteous thoughts and intentions. We may discover that our own affections are misplaced, and that we have misguided theology of what I'll be calling in this sermon uh, place and profit. And I'll explain what that means in a moment. But in so exposing our misplaced affections, the Holy Spirit graciously convicts us and gives us an opportunity to lay aside the idolatrous works of our own hands and to heed the call of the gospel. This morning I'm going to break the sermon into three parts, an exposition, a a section on theology, and a section on application. So the exposition here, who's on trial? And, And the argument has to do with Profit and place. Profit and place. So Stephen's cross-examination here, um, just imagine what it'd be like to be in Stephen's shoes. Sometimes I think about how I would respond if I were sort of like arrested for my witness for Christ. And uh, in my mind's eye, it's, I'm very bold and courageous and like telling them what's what. But I also know my own personality is rather actually fairly timid. And so I don't know how I'd respond, but I think I'd probably respond poorly, but for the help of the Holy Spirit. And clearly here, Stephen has the help of the Holy Spirit. He he doesn't flinch when he's cross-examined. We don't have time to go line by line through his argument, but when the high priest asks Stephen, are these things so... Stephen is being attacked here about two issues, the law and the temple. So we'll focus on those two things, the law and the temple. Now in chess, which I'm not a great chess player, but I like to play chess, my favorite defense is an aggressive offense. If you throw them off balance, you can usually disrupt their offense. 
This is what Stephen does here. He goes on the offensive. He goes on the attack. He turns their accusations actually directly around on them. They accuse him of breaking the law and of wanting to destroy the temple. And he says, you break the law and you idolize the temple. In this sermon, I have decided to call these two aspects of law and temple prophet and place. Uh, Throughout the history of Israel, God has been faithful to raise up prophets, spokesmen for himself. And these sort of prophetic redeemers preach God's word and lead the people. They lead them toward a promised land, a place, a temple, a place to live and worship their covenant God. As faithful as God was to supply prophets and to lead the people toward a sense of place, they were unfaithful. And Stephen says that trend of faithful unfaithfulness, despite God's faithfulness, continues even here in this instance. Just as the fathers were unfaithful, you are unfaithful. He begins here with the story of Abraham in the history of Israel. And God initiates a sort of prophetic relationship with Abraham by raising him up. He calls him to leave his family and his home in Mesopotamia. He's a Chaldean. We talked about them in Sunday school this morning. A pagan, really. God has a plan for this pagan to give him a land and a legacy and an inheritance. And what does Abraham do with the voice of the Lord? Abraham kind of does what we typically do, is he kind of went halfway. He doesn't leave his kindred. God said, leave your kindred. He takes his father with him. And he doesn't go all the way to the promised land. He stops halfway in Haran. So Abraham, the father of the nation, fails to adhere entirely to the prophetic voice of God. Even the father of the nation. And next, in tracing the theme of of place or temple in this passage, the place where God's people would live and worship would ultimately be in this little scrap of land, Canaan. And yet, there was no Israel. There was no nation at this time. There was just this man from Mesopotamia. And he really didn't even inherit the land himself. His offspring would, but not before living in exile in Egypt for 400 years, as God told him. But he says, eventually, they'll come out to worship me in this place, the place of promise. The Bible's theology of of place and of temple is very interesting. Um, It begins in the garden, the place of life, the place of communion with God. There's a sort of temple in the Garden of Eden. We're meant to commune with God. Then man is removed from the garden and cast into a place of struggle and death and absence of God. And there's this thread throughout the Bible of mankind's sojourn through various exilic deserts, but always toward the restoration of a sense of place where God will be our God and we will be his people. We're, We're heading toward that Edenic temple once again, and even better than that in glory.
Even the promised land was meant to be a kind of sanctuary, a temple, a place where God was. And of course, the storyline ends with Jesus himself coming as Emmanuel, God with us, the temple in flesh. So you see here, Abraham, after a long lineage from Noah, God is beginning to gather and redeem a people and give them a sense of place. It's kind of nebulous for Abraham, but he's beginning to restore that sense of place, that sense of temple. God is not done with Abraham. He kicks him from Haran after his father dies, and he brings him into the land, and he doesn't even give him a scrap of it except for a tomb. But he begins to form the nation by giving them this identifying sign of circumcision. So next, Stephen deals with Joseph and the patriarchs in verses 9 through 16. And again, tracing this theme of prophet, Joseph was sort of the prophetic pipsqueak. He was the arrogant irritant. He he was the dreamer. God was raising up this prophetic redeemer But the patriarchs would persecute the prophet. You see the trend beginning here? The people persecuting God's prophets, God's redeeming prophets. They sent him away into slavery, but God did not cease to raise up Joseph. Joseph would become the savior of his persecutors, the savior of the nation, and the ongoing fulfillment of God's promises. And considering this aspect of place, uh, here we see Egypt, not Canaan, not the land of Israel, was the place where the nation began. Egypt became the temporary homeland. Egypt was the nursery of the homeland. They went in a family, they came out a nation. So despite the unfaithfulness of the people, God would continue here to be faithful to them. Stephen spends most of his time in this passage, in this message on Moses, as they're accusing him of blaspheming Moses. It makes sense. His accusers cried out, he speaks blasphemous words against Moses and God. I kind of wonder about the order of those two people, Moses and God. So Moses and the law and the tabernacle in verses 17 through 45. This is where we really see that theme of the prophet beginning to ramp up. Once again, God is faithful to to raise up a prophetic redeemer. God brings Moses up against the law, protects him from Pharaoh's evil plan. And Stephen kind of has a different take than I always have about the the. Moses killing the Egyptian. I always thought like Moses is this hot-headed murderer. And here it seems that he sort of, at least in the back of his mind, had this idea that he would be the redeemer of the people. And they rejected him. So whether he did the right thing there or not, I don't know. It wasn't, he wasn't exactly called yet, but he had this sense. I'm this prophetic, I'm going to save my people, the Hebrews. And they rejected him. Forty years later, God does call Moses to be the redeemer and prophet for his people at the burning bush. And if you'll look at 35, we'll read some of the passage here. It says, Then Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? 
This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out by performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. You see how strong he's making this this one, this Moses, this man, this one. He did all these things, and then how did, does Israel respond to Moses? The golden calf. In 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts returned to, turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this, Moses, who led out us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Notice the thrust here, too, of Stephen's history of place and of temple. Um, if you were a nas- nationalistic Jewish leader obsessed with the absolute singular holiness of the temple in Jerusalem, I, I think you would notice what he's driving at here. First of all, Moses is rejected or, or uh, rescued by an Egyptian woman. Secondly, he was trained up in the instruction and wisdom of the Egyptians. Says he was mighty in deeds and works. There's sort of tales that Josephus tells of Moses being a general and going off to battle and conquering, um, invading uh, Ethiopians. I think it was. That I don't know if those things are true or not, but um, there's some tales about the mightiness of Moses before he was ever called. But he was trained. His instruction, his training, his schooling was Egyptian. It wasn't Hebrew. Thirdly, he received his call from the burning bush. In Midian, Saudi Arabia, way down there, not in the promised land, where God said to him, remove your sandals, this is holy ground. Not the temple mount in Jerusalem, this is holy ground. Wherever God speaks is holy ground. Fourthly, again, in the same wilderness as the burning bush, Sinai, God came and gave the oracles to Moses. The law was delivered in the wilderness, not in the promised land. And fifth, God's house uh, was a tent in the wilderness. And even for many years as they went into the promised land, it was this tabernacle, this tent. And it wasn't until Solomon that the temple was actually built in Jerusalem. And as wonderful and as theologically significant as it was, the tabernacle and the temple were only representative of the presence of God. It was only a shadow. It was a pointing forward. So as persistent as God was in faithfulness, the people were persistent in unfaithfulness. Stephen quotes from Amos chapter 5 and verse 42 when he says, But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? 
You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So here again is the theme, this rejection of Moses, of, of the law, and of God himself by the Israelites. All of this leads now to Stephen's accusation against them. R.C. Sproul said that Stephen had been giving them a history of themselves. The defendant has become the prosecution. They accused him of blaspheming Moses and wanting to destroy the temple. But his response turns the charge around against them and says, You make too much of the temple. You idolize the temple. With regard to the prophet, you resist the Holy Spirit like your forefathers. In verse 48, he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen's point is clear here. You men, you temple rulers who are so interested in the law, so interested in the temple, you continue to reject the prophetic redeemers God sends to you. Both the prophetic redeemers and the prophetic redeemer. You've rejected and you've even murdered him. When he says you resist the Holy Spirit, he means that you fight against the revelation of God. Like the patriarchs, like the people in Egypt, and like like the people in the wilderness, and all those who killed the prophets, you will not listen to God. Your ears are uncircumcised. And your heart also. You always go your own way. You're just like the people in the wilderness. You rejoice in the work of your hands. This this temple, which is now more of a political outpost for power and greed than it is a true worship. This temple is your golden calf, the work of your hands. So Stephen speaks this, this message of pronouncement, this pronouncement of judgment with the authority of one of the prophets. And as if to prove his point, they treat him just like the rest of the prophets. They grind their teeth at him and stone him. They hate the voice of the Holy Spirit. But then Stephen has this this vision or this view of heaven. And it shows that he is the one who will be vindicated in this trial. He's the innocent prophet who knows the true presence of God because he worships the true God through the power of Christ. King Jesus is his judge and witness before God. And in verse 56, Jesus stands and testifies and renders the verdict that in him Stephen is innocent and is a faithful servant. Those who stone him are actually the ones guilty of self-will, of idolatry, of false witness, and now of murder. So here the case has been presented by Stephen, the verdict rendered, And the real prosecution, Stephen, has won his case. 
the point of Stephen's, uh, Stephen's sermon, I think, is essentially you idolize the temple, you resist the Holy Spirit. Which leads us to the theology portion of the message. Um, the theology question I want to ask is, what is our theology of place and of profit, as I've been using those terms? In Christ, those two things, place, temple, and prophet, come together in a single person. In the hypostatic union, they're made into one, brought into one person, Jesus Christ. That was always the case that he served that function, but prior to his revelation, people were tied to the shadows. They had to go to the temple to worship, to make sacrifices, and they awaited revelations from prophets that would reveal the word of God to them. But now that Christ has come, we find in him this very idea of temple, of the presence of God, of sacrifice, of the priesthood, are all combined into his person and his work. And in him, all the prophetic communication of God is subsumed. He is the word of God made flesh. So he is our place. He is our temple. He is our prophet, our revelation. The people of Israel were too inclined to put their confidence in the temple. In Jeremiah verse, uh, chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, God warns them. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. See, the people were were saying, we're safe, we're fine, we don't have to change our ways because the temple is here, like a talisman. But God says, do not trust those deceptive words, the temple of the Lord. In Revelation, we read the conclusion of all the Bible's theology of temple. In Revelation 21, verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I have two brief exhortations for you, and then we'll close. The first exhortation is to lay down the works of your own hands. Lay down the works of your own hands. What is your temple? What is your golden calf? What is the idol that you craft with your own work in your own hands, your your cash cow, if you will? Where is it that you resist the Holy Spirit? Where is that sensitive place in your heart that if I were to poke it, you would get mad at me? I'm not going to do that. Maybe I will. (laughs) Those places where you would pick up stones and grind your teeth are probably the places where you need to lay down the works of your own hands. Matthew 13, Jesus, in his parable of the soils, he's explaining it. And the one on the thorns is interesting. 13.22, as for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world... And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. We see this again, Paul's companion in ministry, Demas. He, he goes with Paul on his missionary journeys, and then in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul laments for Demas 
in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So whatever they are, whatever our golden calves are, the the beauty of religious facades or the simple idols of our hearts and the pleasures of the world, they are the works of our own hands. They are the things we need to lay aside, the idols of our hearts. Truly the way we commune with God is in Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. We lay aside the world and we set our minds on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Second exhortation is to listen to the Holy Spirit. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Are you resisting the Holy Spirit? Do you want to hear the Holy Spirit? Do you want to submit to the Holy Spirit? I haven't suddenly become charismatic here. This is what Stephen says. Stiff necks and uncircumcised hearts resist the Holy Spirit. But notice how stiff neckedness manifests itself. It's not in the like liver shivers. It's in resistance to the prophetic word about Christ from God's spokesman. It's in rejecting God's prophetic voice from his mouthpieces and setting them aside for our own desires. So how do we listen to the Holy Spirit? We heed the will of God as laid down for us in the scriptures. The word read and the word preached. I listened to one sermon from a well-known preacher on this passage this week who summarized the passage and didn't read it, which I understand. But the reason I chose to read the whole thing is because the word read aloud is the good part of the sermon. Whatever comments I managed to come up with are far and away secondary to the word. It takes about eight minutes to read Acts chapter 7. You remember the stories of... In Nehemiah, where they read, read the whole law to the assembly, it takes eight minutes to read Acts chapter 7. And we can't just simply read and listen to the word, because men's hearts are foolish and darkened. We can't simply analyze the word and explain the word. We must hear the word as what it really is, the word of God. And for that, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. In our day, we're so consumer-minded. We have expectations about what the power of the Spirit should look like. My demeanor doesn't fit that bill for many people, right? What is the power of the Holy Spirit? power of the Spirit is not about the form of the presentation. It's about what God does with timeless truths when they have landed in our ears and whether or not they trickle down to our hearts. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul speaks of the power of the Spirit and he, he says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of churches of God in Christ Jesus that are now in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen 
as they did from the Jews. There to me the power of the Holy Spirit is manifested in the fresh obedience of people who, who, who just heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, not as word of men, but as the word of God, and who have suffered for the gospel's sake. He says, it is at work in you believers. So as we close here, this whole thing comes back around to the central question, really, of Acts, which is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Will we submit our wills to him or will we follow our own willful plan? Will we listen to the prophet, prophetic voice of the scriptures illumined and applied for us by the Holy Spirit or will we, we resist the Holy Spirit and go our own way, doing what is right in our own eyes? Will we find our place and profit in Jesus or will we fabricate temples for ourselves made from human hands? I mean, it's an important question. It's one that Stephen died for. And Jesus will stand to vindicate those who are his and to judge all those who go their own way. Amen.